Friends, as you grow in your understanding of the scriptures, something that I would love for for all of us, that would be true for all of us, is to be increasingly amazed at the first century ministry of Jesus fulfilling the Old Testament. As we grow in our understanding of the Bible, I would long for us to be increasingly amazed and astounded at how the ministry of Christ fulfills and captures those ancient prophecies recorded over so many centuries. It is true, you can speak of Jesus' work as fulfilling what he said, because he did say those things. The Son of Man would suffer and be rejected and on the third day rise from the dead. You can say that the resurrection of Jesus, as well as his death preceding it, fulfilled what Jesus taught. But also... What the biblical authors in the Old Testament said would happen. There is a glorious web of intricate, wonderful expectations and promises in the Old Testament. And Jesus' death, his life, death, and resurrection are wrapped up in old predictions. The Old Testament exists because Jesus was coming. And the New Testament exists because Jesus came. And we need to understand the Old Testament the way Jesus did. We need to believe him when he said that the Old Testament testified to what he would accomplish. That if you were to read the Old Testament, you would see glimpses all over the place ahead of time of what he had come to do. We need to hold the whole Bible together then. The Bible is a book full of Christ. I didn't say the New Testament is full of Christ. According to Jesus, the Old Testament is full of Christ. That's why we give so much attention to the Old Testament here at Cosmosdale. That's why in the early church, before the New Testament was even fully written, the apostles were proclaiming the Old Testament and Christ from it. We need to believe what Jesus said about it. It It's God's design that the Old Testament be full of his son. It was the divine intent of those 39 books. The Old Testament prepares the way for the Lord, truly and indeed. Once we see the arrival of Christ in the New Testament, it is like bright, shining light for our eyes to adjust to. You might see this in the morning. Maybe you've got family members that you need to wake up. And what ultimately needs to happen is the lights are just going to have to be flipped on at some point. You need to get up. You need to get up. That might not stir them. But you start turning on all the lights and it's just, you know, recoiling. And you're trying to see the adjustment of that shocking moment. In the most positive sense, the glorious dawning light of Christ has shown to such an extent that it doesn't only light up the New Testament, it lights up the old. B.B. Warfield is right with his illustration that the Old Testament is like a chamber richly furnished but dimly lighted. He says the Old Testament is like a chamber richly furnished but dimly lighted. And the introduction of light brings into it nothing that wasn't already there but brings it into a clearer view because it was only dimly lighted before and not as well perceived. Warfield is right. The Old Testament, we now understand in light of the new. 
And we understand the new in light of the old. Because the light of Jesus fills the canon of the 66 books. And with the help of the, old, with the, help of the Holy Spirit, we come to see the glories of the Old Testament in light of Christ. And we do this because Jesus himself taught about the Old Testament this way. We do this because Jesus instructed by his own example his apostles to preach and teach this way. When the apostles preach the way they do in Acts, and when they write the way they do in the letters about the Old Testament, they're writing and preaching the way they do because Jesus has opened the scriptures to them. So we want to come to the whole of scripture, longing to behold Christ. That is our heart's deepest, most profound need. That you would behold the truth and glory of Jesus. That changes people. That changes people. It changes people not for a few hours and not for a few days. It impacts souls to such an extent that our lives become reoriented around what it now means to know the Christ we've come to see. We come to verses 44 to 49 this morning to hear Jesus speak. And in verse 43 that we ended with last week, we were on the first day of the week, the resurrection day, the day of his empty tomb and the appearances to the disciples. And it would be easy for us to assume the rest of the chapter continues on that same resurrection day. After all, in verse 44, it says, then he said, and in verse 50, and he led them out as far as Bethany. But we know from the book of Acts that verse 43 is followed by some space and time. Reading Luke 24 and Acts 1 together, we realize our verses this morning and the ascension, they do not take place on the day of Jesus' resurrection. Jesus did not ascend enthroned to the right hand of God on the day of his resurrection. We know from the same Author Luke, both this gospel and the book of Acts, which he wrote, 40 days will transpire. So several weeks unfold after the resurrection. Verses 44 through 49 take place sometimes, sometime in those intervening weeks. And on the 40th day after the resurrection, the ascension will take place in verses 50 to 53. Sometimes in a narrative... It's not always clear when we need to imply some time that unfolds. So Acts 1 helps us there. That's why I've taken a few moments to refer to it. Verses 44 to 49 doesn't take place on the day of Jesus' resurrection, but in the days that followed when he would teach them, instruct them about the kingdom of God and what he had come to do, and especially how what he'd come to do wrapped up Old Testament hope. In Acts 1-3, Jesus presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. What are the sorts of things Jesus said, taught, and spoke about during the 40 days between resurrection and ascension? Our verses this morning give us an idea. And as we can imagine the disciples hearing these words thinking, 
Do we have some time for questions now, Jesus? Because we want to interact about it. And Jesus would teach and instruct for weeks before his ascension, which Luke records for us at the very end. In verse 44, there's a reminder of previous teaching. Look with me at verse 44. Then Jesus said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That might seem a little odd on the face of it when he is present with them teaching. What does he mean while I was still with you? They might be looking at each other and thinking we see him right here while I was with you. This must mean a pre-cross resurrection presence with them. In other words, while I was with you before all of the climactic events here that have just transpired, while I was with you and teaching and traveling and ministering and working miracles and all the rest, while I was with you, don't you remember some of what I said? These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. He's bringing to mind what they ought to remember. Remembrance is a key way that we grow. I wonder if this has dawned on you. That the longer you're a disciple of Jesus, you realize you're not just always learning something new. We don't always, we don't grow by always learning something new. You will find indeed that as a disciple of Jesus, we grow by deepening in what is very old. Things that we heard at the beginning that we did not quite grasp. In fact, we will realize throughout our Christian lives, we might think we're hearing something as if for the first time, and yet we've been told it many times before. We will find that we might have been old enough to hear something, but not yet mature enough to fully grasp and process it, to appreciate it and understand it, and yet it comes. God is gracious, and God is patient, and God helps us. When Jesus reminds them about words he had spoken, it's because the discipline of remembrance has always been crucial for the people of God. The early disciples know that our growth and our deepening is not by always hearing something new, but by anchoring and deepening in what is old. Not all the pieces just click for us when we hear things. We don't get it all the first time around. We're not meant to. We have to give ourselves some relief here and realize, okay, I've got a long direction as a disciple. I'm on a path and a trajectory of following Jesus. And I'm going to glean and learn and grasp what I can along the way. And then the Lord is gracious and merciful to help us grow and deepen in our discipleship. I know you have found this true for you. We recognize how this is the common Christian experience. So here is Jesus, sometime after his resurrection, and he's calling their minds to remember what he said. What he's told them while I was with you earlier, he says, is that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. What are the emphases in this verse? There's an emphasis on the fulfillment that had to happen. Notice, must be fulfilled. The end of verse 44 emphasizes that it wasn't even an option that, well, you know what, Uh, here are some things that have been written down. You know, these things may or may not happen in terms of Jesus's ministry. We're not really sure whether he's going to fulfill everything we wrote about him. 
No, they must be fulfilled. There's an emphasis on the fulfillment, but also an emphasis on the totality. Everything written about me must be fulfilled. It must be fulfilled and everything written about me falls into that category. The subject of what was written is Jesus himself. Everything written about me. I want to pause for a second to just reflect on what a staggering claim that would be to make in the ancient world. That the Old Testament would be about this particular figure who is speaking. If you set aside Jesus for a moment and imagine, you know, Bartholomew or Andrew or Simon or one of these 12 saying, well, yes, you know, the things written about me in the law, the prophets and the Psalms. Everybody would just laugh. What a hoot that would be that someone would imagine the ancient oracles and prophetic writings pertaining to them. You're either the Lord of heaven and earth or you're crazy to make this kind of statement. That everything written about me. There's a breakdown of the Old Testament here into three parts. The way we conceive of our Old Testament doesn't feel like three parts to us. When we organize Genesis to Malachi, we break it down a little differently. We do keep the law or the Pentateuch, which are the first five books, the books of Moses. But after that, it's sometimes organized as the historical books and the, pro- and the poetic books and the prophetic books. Some of those categories, you may have heard these before as breaking down the Old Testament into some workable sections. The Old Testament in Jesus' day was conceived to be in three parts. The law of Moses, which was Genesis through Deuteronomy. And then what were called the prophets, Joshua, and the ordering was a little different. Joshua, Judges, the books of Samuel and Kings, and then Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the 12 minor prophets. Those were considered the prophets after the law. All the rest of the scriptures went into a third section. It didn't have as formal a name as it did later on, which is sometimes called the writings. So what they would do is they would let the largest book of the third section represent the whole. And the largest book in the third section is Psalms, 150 chapters. When Jesus says the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, this is a, a way of saying with three parts, the whole Old Testament. That's the way to break it down. Jesus' words are speaking, in other words, about the Old Testament having prophesied or written about him what he then fulfilled and it must happen and everything written would be in that category. We're reminded of the words to the women by the angels in Luke 24 on the morning of the resurrection. The angel said to the women, the son of man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified. And in verses 25 to 27, Jesus had told the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Wasn't it necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then we're told the beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted the scriptures concerning himself. Jesus is now on another occasion in Luke 24, pressing the point. Even though there are disciples, including the women at the early tomb, uh, the empty tomb that morning, 
who had heard about what the Son of Man fulfilled, what must had happened to have happened. Jesus, days later and before his ascension, is once again turning to the Old Testament, which is about him. The Old Testament had words that he was going to fill up. The Old Testament had promises which he was going to keep, patterns which he was going to fulfill. So there's a reminder of previous teaching in verse 44. And it's a threefold way, law of Moses, prophets, and the Psalms, of trying to capture the whole Old Testament. And it was written about him. Again, friends, and I know I've said it already, the Old Testament exists because Jesus was coming. That's why it was written. And then the New Testament exists because Jesus came. The book is a book full of Christ. He opens their minds in verse 45, and I love this statement because the implications here are worth pondering. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. We have to think about this. Opening their minds is not something they themselves did. They were dependent on the Lord to powerfully open their minds to understand. And you say, well, wait a second. Were they not able to read or analyze or recognize a preposition or a conjunction? I'm not talking about a grammatical analysis of verses or being able to recite or, or, uh, or memorize swaths of text. I'm talking about a kind of understanding where the truth and beholding of the person of Christ is upon their heart and mind. I'm talking about a kind of understanding that beholds Christ and delights in him to hear and obey. I'm talking about a kind of understanding that perceives and is followed by wisdom, the wise man who hears and builds his house on the rock. We're talking about that kind of understanding of the Bible. And it reminds us of that Emmaus Road earlier in verse 45. Jesus interpreted for those two the things concerning himself in the scriptures. We're told that those Emmaus disciples had been, uh, those Emmaus disciples had been kept from recognizing Jesus in verse, 60, verse 16. But in verse 31, their eyes were opened and they recognized him. I want to put together a pair of words. Recognition of Jesus and understanding. Understanding and recognition go hand in hand. I, I suggested to you when we read of those two Emmaus disciples being kept from recognizing him and then their eyes were opened. That's a play on a deeper reality of understanding the scriptures. Because while they were kept from recognizing him, they did not fully grasp the scriptures which were about Christ. And when he opened to them the scriptures and they sat at table to break bread, their eyes were opened to recognize him. In other words, perceiving Jesus is a multi-level event. These disciples could see without really seeing and they needed to really see. They needed to be able to hold the Bible and perceive and grasp and behold Jesus. They needed to be able to delight and treasure the Christ of the word of God. They needed to really see. Do we need the Holy Spirit to help us understand the scriptures? The answer is a resounding yes. Absolutely. 
Jesus told some religious leaders in John 5.46, If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. Well, that's quite a statement. To religious leaders who would have said, of course we believe Moses. But Jesus knew they didn't really believe Moses. Because Moses wrote of Christ. Because the Old Testament is a book full of Christ. And Jesus says, well, here you are rejecting me. You clearly don't believe the Old Testament book of Moses. Books of Moses, Genesis through Deuteronomy. Jesus told them, if you don't believe his writings, how are you going to believe my words? They had eyes, if you will, that did not recognize him. Their minds had not been opened to understand, if you will, the scriptures. Do we need the Holy Spirit to understand the scriptures? Yes. Resounding yes. In 2 Corinthians 3, Paul says, To this day, whenever the books of Moses are read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. You see, these, these people who were reading the Old Testament and not trusting in Christ, not believing the writings about Christ, it's as if they were reading in unbelief. Reading with a veil that covered their understanding, a veil over their hearts. Notice a veil over their hearts there. You might think of a veil over one's face. A veil over the hearts presses the same point that recognition and understanding are going together in the ministry of Christ. In Luke 24, 45, those Emmaus disciples, it says, uh, or in verse 45 of our passage today, not the Emmaus disciples, it tells us of the 11 and the others in the room with Jesus, he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And Paul's prayer in Ephesians 1.18 is that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened so that we can know and learn and grasp things. Well, to summarize a point then, do we need the Holy Spirit to understand the scriptures? Yes, we need the veil removed, our hearts illuminated, and our minds opened to understand the word of God. That's why we pray over the word. That's why we plead for the Lord's help. Because we don't, we're not those who will just open the scriptures and just behold Christ. That is not part of natural man to understand the spiritual things. We need the heart-thrilling, delight-stoking, Christ-exalting spirit of the living God at work. And God is so gracious, isn't he, among us. Helping us and illuminating our hearts. Helping us to see inside into his word and behold the glories of Jesus. In verses 46 to 48, Jesus wants to tell them what the Old Testament teaches. And our burden, our glad burden in our Christian discipleship is to believe what Jesus says about the Old Testament. Here's what he tells them. Verses 46 through 48. Thus it is written, he said to them, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. He tells them, those are the things written. Written where? In the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, Jesus is saying, here's what you will find written. Thus it is written, or it is written in the following sense, that in the Old Testament, Christ would suffer, he would rise from the dead, 
and repentance and forgiveness for sins would be proclaimed to the nations. He says, if you read the Old Testament, you will see that. If your minds are open to the scriptures, the Spirit's help and illuminating power is there, you will read the Old Testament and that is what you will see. To suffer is not to be distinguished from Jesus' death. Sometimes in the book of Acts, the suffering of Jesus is used as shorthand for his rejection and opposition, his uh, flogging and crucifixion, and his death on the cross. We know that his death is not removed because after suffering, he mentions here, on the third day, rise from the dead. Okay, so death is implied. The, the, the idea of Christ suffering and rising from the dead means suffering unto death and vindication on the third day. Jesus teaches that the Old Testament has these things written. Now, what would he have in mind? Because he doesn't go into particular passages here. And yet in the book of Acts and in the letters of the apostles, we have an abundance of material for us to realize how the Old Testament had written already in its dimly lighted but fully furnished room what the light of Christ now floods the Old Testament with for us to see the way prepared all along. Let's start at the beginning. In Genesis 3.15, the first promise of the Old Testament Messiah is that the promised son would achieve victory through suffering. This is the first messianic promise in the Old Testament. Genesis 3.15, the opening promise for the coming deliverer is that victory would be accomplished through suffering. Well, that sets quite a trajectory. When Jesus says, in other words... That it is written in the Old Testament that the Christ should suffer and rise from the dead. The seeds of that are sown in the first book of the Bible. It's not some like later progressively developed hope the farther you get into the Old Testament. No, we're talking about Genesis. We're talking about early. If you do get later on into the Old Testament, into the prophets, you'll find in Isaiah 52 and 53 that God would raise up a servant, a servant of the Lord, who would die for the iniquities of the people. They would have their iniquities counted to this figure, and the suffering servant would be crushed in their place. There is a picture of redemption in the book of Exodus. In the book of Exodus, redemption is accomplished through judgment. Notice that when the Israelites are brought out, out of the deliverance from Egypt, but also through the Red Sea. Pictures of judgment and suffering surround it. Judgment of the plagues, but also the walls of water that crash upon the Egyptians. Deliverance through judgment in a big epic picture known as the Exodus. Think of the sacrificial offerings. When someone brings an offering to be burned up on the altar... That is picturing that reconciliation to God happens through a sacrifice offered in our place. Think of all the different major characters in the Old Testament and things they went through. Paths that were being forged through their suffering and their lives becoming what are called throughout church history types of Christ. Types of the Messiah. Abel in Genesis. The first death in the Old Testament. Abel is rejected and killed. He is a righteous sufferer. Isaac was to be offered on the mountain in Genesis 22. 
Joseph was betrayed and persecuted by his own people. Moses was opposed and rejected by his people in Exodus and in the book of Numbers. David was a king who was rejected and who suffered and who was exiled. Prophets like Elijah and Jeremiah were rejected and persecuted. I'm trying to give you a sense here that in the Old Testament, the prophets, kings, major figures like David all the way to Abel in Genesis were types of Christ. Suffering, people raised up who experienced what Christ himself would experience in the most climactic way. Over and over again in the Old Testament, we see major figures facing opposition, persecution, and betrayal. They are like streams of water that are flowing over rock. And when water flows over rock long enough and fast enough, with enough time and momentum, a channel or a path is forged. And what these patterns or types do in the Old Testament is begin to, over time and with momentum of the writings of the prophets, God's Spirit has inspired a path forged to Calvary. When you arrive at the cross, Christ fulfills what has been written of him both in explicit prophecies and in epic stories and events and characters who forge the way. We also see here that it is written, Jesus says, that Christ on the third day would rise from the dead. The expectation of a third day deliverance. Where would we find that kind of thing in the Old Testament? Isaac was not actually killed in Genesis 22. He was delivered from sacrifice. And he was delivered on the third day in Genesis 22.9. Joseph released his brothers on the third day in Genesis 42. Moses came down, or Moses came to meet God at Mount Sinai on the third day in Exodus 19. The Israelites were to be led by Joshua across the Jordan to begin their conquest in three days. Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days when he was delivered. In fact, Jesus himself will draw upon the story of Jonah in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 12. As Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so will the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth. In Hosea, the people said, after two days he'll revive us and on the third day raise us up. Hezekiah was healed from sickness on the third day in 2 Kings 20. And Esther successfully interceded for her Jewish kindred on the third day in Esther 4.16. Why do I give a litany of examples in this way? To show that over and over again, a pattern has been formed. A stream is flowing with momentum to forge a channel. And what's being forged is deliverance on the third day. It is written... That the Christ would suffer and on the third day rise. There are more examples that could be cited, but these are sufficient to make the point. And then in verse 47, a third element in the Old Testament. He says, not only in the Old Testament will you see the suffering of Christ and the deliverance of Christ through all these prophecies and patterns and stories, you will see that repentance for the forgiveness of sins was to be proclaimed to the nations. This was not a New Testament idea. 
This is an Old Testament idea. That the nations and families of the earth would come to know God. Think again of the first book of the Bible. In Genesis chapter 12. We're told in Genesis 12 verse 3. That through Abraham's family all the families of the earth would be blessed. There is no more profound or lasting blessing for the families of the earth, for the nations of the world, than salvation in the one who is the seed of Abraham, Jesus Christ. He's the key. So repentance for the forgiveness of sins being proclaimed to the nations, there has always been from the first book of the Bible a global scope of the plan of God. And that global scope is taken up by the church and the mission, often called the Great Commission from Matthew 28. Well, I want to tell you about the Great Commission in Luke. There is one in Matthew. We want to celebrate it. Matthew 28, 18 to 20. Praise God. Here's the Great Commission in Luke. In Luke 24, 47, that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. A responsibility is being laid upon them. And it is joyous. It is the news for all the earth that forgiveness of sins exists in Jesus Christ in his saving name. This is the great commission according to Luke. The message is about repentance for the forgiveness of sins. There is no forgiveness of sins apart from repentance. Here we hit at the core of our human problem. We are sinners. Every one of us. And God is holy. And rightly so. We are unrighteous. And God is righteous. What is it that we need? Well, being people who are sinners, we need forgiveness of sins. We need pardon. We need atonement. If we need forgiveness of sins... For not only have we sinned, but our God is holy and he is just and he is righteous. How will we acquire what it is we need? It will not be because we have been found after further examination innocent. No, we are guilty. We are rightly condemned and judged in our sin. We will not find forgiveness of sins by our striving. Well, perhaps after all the things that I've done, I now have a list of things I now ought to do so that I can some way tip the scales in a better direction, more favorable for me. Hopefully on the last day, the Lord will say, my goodness, after a really weak start, he really came through at the end like the Kentucky Derby race. Who would have seen it coming that in the end, this one would have lasted and taken the lead and the prize. And then in the end, that's going to happen. You know, no one would have thought we would have been counted out. But on that last day, we will prove ourselves. No. It will not be so on that day. Only God can reconcile us to God. Our sins have alienated us from God. And only God can reconcile us to God. The message of the gospel, and I hope you never get over this, is that the one who is the righteous judge is our merciful Redeemer. 
Only God can reconcile us to God. The message he says to proclaim is repentance for the forgiveness of sins. When you read in Acts chapter 2, they are proclaiming Jesus crucified, the author of life raised from the dead that they had, been, that they had killed in Jerusalem. God had raised him from the dead and they said, now what shall we do? What must we do to be set? And the answer to P, from Peter is that they must repent. To repent means to turn. It means that when one is looking to Christ, one is no longer living for and oriented unto sin. This does not result in some sinless life of perfection. No, we can all, as disciples of Jesus, we can testify the only kind of disciples Jesus has are imperfect disciples. That's the only category of people following Jesus, imperfect disciples. But it is our desire to follow him. We want him. We love him. We rejoice in him. He is our redeemer. He has pardoned our sin. We do not want to live in sin. We don't want to give ourselves to it. We don't want to live in rebellion against God. So the message for the nations is repentance, turning from sin unto Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Spurgeon is right. Repentance is not a grace only exercised by us for a week or at the beginning of our Christian career. Spurgeon says repentance is to attend us All the way to heaven. Faith and repentance, he says, are inseparable companions throughout our pilgrimage to glory. Repenting of our sin is to be the tenor of our lives. I love the way Spurgeon phrases things, and this here is so helpful. He's not saying, well, friends, listen, let me talk to you about repentance. The thing you must do and do once at the beginning of our Christian life. No, in fact, the Christian life is a life turning from sin unto God, looking to Jesus, who alone is our righteousness, who suffered and was raised from the dead, he alone who is our Savior. We believe this message, repentance for the forgiveness of sins. There's no more pressing problem. There's no greater news. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed. This is a trumpeting verb. What are you going to do? Whisper about this news? Proclaimed. The strength of the verb fits the power of the message. If the message is what it seems to be, and it is, it is that good. It's too good not to be true. For the message being what it is, it ought to be trumpeted and proclaimed. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. I do not bear it. Not today, not tomorrow. I do not bear it. Because the message of the cross is that he bore it and he didn't bear some of it and only for some of the time. But he bore all of it for all of eternity for us. Why wouldn't you proclaim this message? Why wouldn't you trumpet it? Friends, why wouldn't you believe it? There's nothing more glorious than this. These disciples 
are being told, if you look into the Old Testament, you'll see that the Christ was to suffer, the Christ was to rise from the dead, and the message of forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name, in Jesus' name, to all the nations. Why such a focus on the name of Jesus? Friends, there's no forgiveness outside Christ. My only hope is that Jesus died in my sins so that I won't. But there's no other deliverer coming. There's no other worldview or spiritual path or that will alleviate our shame and guilt and justify us before God. There is only Christ. So the message is so specific. It is forgiveness of sins in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, who on the cross did for the nations what the nations need. This is the gospel. This is Luke's great commission, that they would proclaim this to all nations. Now you might wonder, where in the Old Testament, besides maybe the Abrahamic covenant and promise of the families of the earth being blessed through Abraham's line, that would certainly be a place to go. Also Isaiah, Isaiah 49.6, speaking of the servant of the Lord, who would be Jesus. Isaiah 49.6, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. This is why Jesus says in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. What a claim. I wonder if you believe that. I will make you a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Where will it start? Beginning from Jerusalem, he says in verse 47, the book of Acts, written by Luke, gives us the pattern, doesn't it? From Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. It's that same goal. But where are these disciples now? Well, they're in Jerusalem. So he's saying, you're just going to start where you are. And you're going to try to help and aid the gospel beyond that. But look around you, it's Jerusalem. So he's saying, we're going to begin here. Yes, the place where he was crucified. And the place where he has been raised. In verse 48, Jesus says, you are witnesses of these things. I think that these things must refer to his suffering and resurrection. They, they know of Christ's physical crucifixion and they are testifying now and can that he has been raised from the dead bodily. They're witnesses. The Old Testament had written about these things and they are witnesses of its fulfillment. So now they've got a message. They don't have anything more pressing and urgent and lasting to share than that Jesus of Nazareth that the Old Testament had written about has come and fulfilled all of those things, everything written of him, and there is forgiveness in his name. So you should believe in him. And they might find all sorts of objections in the conversations they have with people. Well, you don't know what I've done. Well, friend, do you not think Jesus knew what you were going to do? Do you not think he had all of your sins, not just your past, but your present and your future, your iniquities, all that would be counted against you. Do you not know, friends, that in Christ Jesus you are not condemned and fully not condemned and forever not condemned? That the sins not counted against you are not just your past sins. Christ is not just a help of, of past righteousness for you, but your present and future righteousness is Jesus. 
They're to go out as testifiers of this news. That no matter what they have done, they can come to Jesus. His shoulders are big enough for all of your shame. He can take it. So come to him. Come to him. In verse 49, he says, Behold, I'm sending the the promise of my Father upon you. That's a reference to the Holy Spirit. This is why the book of Acts is such a gift to the church. Luke chronologues for us in Acts chapter 2, the outpouring of the Spirit of God to equip and empower the disciples to bear witness for him. I think what he's saying is, Not only do you need your minds open to understand the scriptures, you need the Holy Spirit's help to testify for me. You just need the Holy Spirit. You need the help and aid and spirit of God to live for me, to understand my word, to speak good news to others. You need the spirit of God. He says, I'm sending you what you need. Sending you who you need. The promise of my father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. That's beautiful language talking about the heavenly outpouring and gift of the Spirit that Acts talks about. Staying in the city means in Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 2, we will see a fulfillment of these words in verse 49. We see them waiting in Acts 1, waiting, waiting, trusting, hoping, waiting. That's so much of our pilgrimage, isn't it? So much of the circumstances of life that ebb and flow, and yet all along, there's trusting, and there's hoping, and there's waiting. There's seeking to understand and grow, and they're doing it together, and we're trying to do it together. We're wanting to believe, and we're wanting to behold Christ. I know we're near the end of Luke's gospel, but I love the way John writes near the end of John's gospel of his purpose. In John chapter 20, and in verse 30, he says, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these, these that are written, are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That's that's an amazing statement. John says, here's why I wrote my gospel to you. I don't want you to just walk away impressed about Jesus. I want you to believe in him. I want you to listen to his teachings and behold his wonders. And I want you to believe. Friends, that's why the book of Luke was written. That's why the law, the prophets, and the writings were written. I'm just going to take John's purpose statement. And I'm going to adopt it for a moment as the reason for the whole Old Testament. Why is it? that the law and the prophets and the other scriptures were written? Why is it that they are filled with the shadows and types of Christ? Why is it that the Old Testament exists? Why were these things written? These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing, you may have life in His name.